Hi everybody, Ryan Estriato here. Quick note before we start, the views expressed on this show are my own and not that of my employer. Enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Hi, I hope everybody's doing well. I am so excited about this episode. This is a bonus episode of Donuts in the Lounge. Not really about data per se, but something that I think we don't talk about enough as we talk about data and maybe even education work in general, and that is the power of storytelling in our creative work, in our data use, and in our research. I was so excited when I got the chance to meet up with two of my favorite education creators, Matthew Green, who is the host of the podcast The Art of Teaching, and Dr. Julie Hassan, who is the author of Safe, Seen, and Stretched in the Classroom. The three of us all have projects that are very different, but there's one thing that we have in common, and that is somewhere along the way in our creative process, we realized that storytelling was essential to how we were going to get our work done and how we were going to create some product that spoke to educators in a meaningful way. So we all got together, fired up a Zoom call, and started talking about this and exploring just how we stumbled on this idea, what we love about each other's work, and what we think is next for storytelling and education. I hope you enjoy this bonus episode of Donuts in the Lounge, and do check out Matthew's podcast, The Art of Teaching, and Julie's book, Safe, Seen, and Stretched in the Classroom. Enjoy the episode. Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Ryan Estriato. I'm an educator and an author of the book called The K-12 Educator's Data Guidebook. Uh, and I'm here with two very special friends. I'm so excited about this. Uh, I'm here with Julie, Dr. Julie Hassan, who is an educator and author um, of a book called Safe, Seen, and Stretched in the Classroom. Julie, how are you? I'm doing well, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing fine. So glad to have you here. I'm also here with Matthew Green, who is an educator and the host of the podcast, The Art of Teaching. Matthew, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I'm glad that you're here also. Well, I uh, this is a little different um, for me. Uh, because it's, uh, you know, I've been doing this uh, podcast, Donuts in the Lounge, uh, about data. Um, and one of the things that came up for me as I was having those conversations is, is the idea that educators are creative people. Not a new idea, uh, but something that became really uh, apparent to me as I, uh, as I spoke to folks on, on the pod. And um, the three of us have something in common. We, our projects are different, but uh, one thing that they have in common is that they, we all use, rely on, and use stories to drive um, not only our creative work, but also uh, our work in education. And um, the three of us got to, uh, to chatting on I think it might have been on Twitter or maybe even by email about um, wanting to get, to get together and talk and um, just unpack why we work in the way that we do, uh, why we use stories, why we think it's important, how we do it. 
uh, some of the challenges that have, have come up along the way. And we figured, well, gosh, if we're going to have that conversation uh, and we're three storytellers, we might as well record it <laughs> and uh, and um, learn in public together. So uh, I think I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to kick it over to uh, to Julie just to let the audience know um who you are, what your work is about. And um, I threw a little uh, extra question in here. Who is your favorite character from a movie or book? Oh, that's a good question. Hi, Ryan and Matthew. I'm Julie Hassan. I am a professor at Appalachian State University and the founder of the Chalk and Chances Project, which is a research project focused on long-term teacher impact. So yes, based on stories as data, in a way that helps us look at what teacher impact is and talk about how we can understand it and if we can measure it and all of those things around teacher impact. Favorite book or movie character? I'm going to say um, book and movie, Forrest Gump. Mm. I, I love that character because there's such serendipity. Yeah. Like just ends up in the middle of these historical events. And for people like me who try to make things happen and want to be in control, there's a lesson there, you know, about just going with the flow and dancing with life and ending up where you're going to end up. So I, I love that book and that movie. I completely missed that there was that. There, I'm, I'm sorry, don't kill me, but I completely missed there was a book, that it was a book first. I yes, had no idea. Yes. I had no idea. <laughs> All right. I hope that's true because it's late here. <laughs> But I'm fairly sure that it started as a book. I'm not going to Google it. Let's just let it be a mystery. That's now it's even a restaurant. <laughs> like there's a restaurant in Florida. So it's all kinds of things now. The restaurant yes. is like a Forrest Gump restaurant or is it, it like is Bubba Gump many, Shrimp? It is Bubba Gump Shrimp with every kind of shrimp you could possibly order. And I think key lime pie. <laughs> so check it out. Amazing. <laughs> okay, Matthew, going to kick it over to you. Tell us about your work and also your favorite character from a movie or book? Right. Um, I'm just going to ask, are, are prawns and shrimps the same thing? Because I'm over in Australia and I, I've always wondered if they're the same animal. But maybe we can uh, Google that and, uh, and come back. I think they're similar. I, okay, because I love prawns. I don't think I've ever had shrimp. You haven't Matthew, this you is have fascinating. to come here and we'll go I, to the Bubba Gump I, restaurant. I, I would love to. I went to, there's a place in Sydney called uh, House of Crab, which is mm. amazing. Like they, they pretty much present you with a bag of crab meat and dump it on the table and you <laughs> get a bib and you just consume it. And at the end of the day, they pick up the tablecloth and throw it away. I love it. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, but I've always wondered if prawn and shrimp were the same thing, but maybe uh, maybe similar. But um, uh, Ryan, um, to answer your question, uh, my name obviously is Matthew Green. Um, I teach over uh, in beautiful Sydney, Australia. So it is coming up to midday here when we're recording. Um, I've been teaching for about 15 years. Um, I'm a proud a public school teacher. Um, and also a school leader. Um, and the reason why I got into teaching is because I had, talking about stories and narratives before, um, I had amazing teachers that made me feel safe and seen uh, and stretched. Um, and I knew that I wanted to make a difference and I'm kind of spoiled now to do anything else um, because I've seen the incredible impact that educators all around the world make. Um, I'm the proud uh, host of the Art of Teaching podcast, uh, which is 
Um, its sort of title is Important Conversations with the Best Minds in Education and Leadership. And I really want to bring together um, some incredible researchers. I've had the privilege of having both of you on the podcast. But also um, uh, I want to have those conversations with people that are not only researchers, not only leaders within school systems, but also uh, people that are externally um, external to school systems because I think that some of the problems that we uh, face, um, at least in Australia, but I've seen that there is consistency around the world with some of these issues, um, I really believe that we can solve them uh, collaboratively. Um, and I'm also passionate about getting great um, research into the classroom because I think sometimes, um, respectfully, research can be um, quite stuffy and I always ask myself, how is this piece of research going to impact me tomorrow when I stand in front of 30 kids? Um, and so I really want to uh, bridge that gap. Um, my favourite uh, book uh, is uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, mm. um, and we named our eldest daughter Harper um, after Harper Lee. Um, I just think it is a, um, a tragic story, but there is beauty within the tragedy. Uh, my wife and I met in high school and we uh, read that book as a, um, a recommended text together. And I guess that's how 15 years later we um, are very happily uh, we're celebrating our wedding anniversary soon. And so, um, yeah, so Harper, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of my favourite books. And I'm going to say my favourite character is characters are James Bond and Jason Bourne because I think all boys kind of, want to be either James Bond or, uh, or Jason Bourne. Yeah. Um, I just think they're cool, you know? Um, that's all the explanation required for those two characters. Exactly. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. and my life is nothing like <laughs> Daniel Craig's life on screen. It is, uh, I drive a Mazda, um, and, uh, I don't wear suits and I'm, but you gotta, you gotta have something to esteem too, you know? So yeah. yeah. James yeah. Bond, Jason Bourne and To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, I am an admirer of, of, of both of your work. Not only is that. Wait, 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 Ryan. Oh yeah. That, yeah. I, I haven't favorite. gone yet. I haven't gone yeah, yet. Okay. okay. Uh, that's true. I'm sure that you I, participated. I, I was holding my breath waiting to find out. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I know. I'm glad that you said it because I almost moved on. I almost moved on but, uh, from the question. Okay. Uh, I am the author of a uh, book that came out in March called the K-12 Educators Data Guidebook, Reimagining Practical, Practical Data Use in Schools. Um, I like to think of it as a how-to uh, guide for educators for how to use data, but a data book with heart. Like it was really important for me to like to to try and write something that was readable, both for folks who enjoy using data, but also for folks who maybe don't enjoy it so much but have to use it anyway. And um, and so that's something that I've been enjoying, you know, just seeing out in the community and, and talking with with people about. I'm also a host of of a podcast called Donuts in the Lounge. Um, and uh, that is a um, podcast where um, I talk to educators and we explore different topics. The theme of season one is data. And so we've been talking about that a lot. Um, I'm going to say, hmm, I've had a lot of favorite characters over, uh, over the years, but a character that I've been thinking a lot about is uh, Ted Lasso. Of the show Ted Lasso, and uh, yeah, I just think I mean part of it is that show is really 
just warms my heart because I love um, English football, big Liverpool fan, and I love the uh, just the culture of of English football. Um, uh, the show is really funny. I associate it with a time in my life where I just needed funny things around me, and so I, you know, I it's a, it's an important show to me. But also just the idea of um, Ted's undying. Uh, belief in people and, um, you know, during circumstances in which, uh, you know, a lot, lot of, a lot of, uh, other characters weren't, you know, weren't quite so nice to him and he's in a, you know, in a tough situation being in a different country, trying to learn, um, a, uh, sport that is steeped in, in hundreds of years of tradition. Um, and just to see how his authenticity, um, plays out in ways that are inspiring, but also uncomfortable. I think the show doesn't really shy away from that. And so there, so I do like, I really enjoy him as just somebody to think about. He's an idealized character. You know, it's hard, it's hard to believe that, that somebody could be perfectly like that, but that's the nature of stories. Um, he, I do find him inspiring. So Ted Lasso. Wow. Do, do you Coach Beard. Coach, oh, Coach Beard. Beard. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Do you, so Matthew, do you, so Julie, I can tell you watch. Matthew, did do you watch Ted Lasso? I'm waiting for the next season. Waiting. I am too. Look, look I, I, I didn't, and my wife has tried to get me into it. And okay. I think um, I think when she tried to get me into it, I just didn't have the headspace. Yeah. And so I revisit it when it's not assessment week at school. Yes. Or, yeah. So I, I think I think for me, I've got to hold this. We we we're just about to start back um, on Monday, a new school term. So the holiday's kind of gone, but I think I'm going to have to wait till next holiday and just mm-hmm. immerse myself in it. Yeah. Um, but I have heard it's amazing. I just don't think I had the bandwidth when I was sitting down and watching it. In fact, I think I fell asleep and slept through three episodes and woke up and thought, I don't know what's going on. So I need. <laughs> I need to readdress this. Um, so yeah, and I don't know what was the coach you mentioned, Julie? Coach Beard, right? Coach That's Beard. right, right, right. Yeah, Coach Beard. Yeah, he's uh, okay. How how would we describe Coach Beard? He is like he's kind he's, of he's like, like the Zen master, yeah, but not. That's a weird explanation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, in the sense <laughs> that he does, he's a foil to Ted in the sense that he brings some realistic wisdom. Um, to Ted, I, he also brings, um, competence to, you know, to, you know, Ted is, I'm, I'm going to avoid spo- spoilers here because Matthew haven't you know, watched it yet, but, but part of his character and part of what makes him funny is he's just not, he's not steeped in the tradition and the, and the ideas of football. And, and so, you know, English football, whereas coach Beard has sort of fashioned himself a scholar, you know, you can sort of tell one of the early scenes in the show is, is him reading, uh, oh, I think he references one of my favorite football books, um, Inverting the Pyramid. It's a history of football tactics. And I think he's, you know, is sort of reading this. And so, um, yeah, so he is kind of like, I think it's a good description, Julie. He's sort of a Zen master. He's somebody that goes Ted, that Ted goes to when he needs help. Um, yeah. But true to the show, uh, he's not infallible. Like, he goes through his own arc in his own struggle um and in some ways 
in pretty uncomfortable ways. Like you sort of watch what Coach Beard goes through. And, you know, this is true of like a few different characters in the show. And like they get into some real, real stuff. I think that was a wonderful description, but I still have no idea um, <laughs> about what's going on. Yes. So I'm going to have to watch this series. Um, you've sold it very well, Ryan, um, and I, I respect you greatly. So I'm going to have to. Uh, I'm going to have to watch it. Well, I hope it doesn't disappoint. Maybe our next recorded conversation will be like whatever the book club version is of Ted Lasso. Lesson, lessons <laughs> from Lasso. Oh, that could be. Love yes, it. so many, it. so many A good lessons. Theory. Yeah. So as creators, we 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 should ask this question. In theory, if we did that, would there be like some kind of strange licensing thing we would have to consider? It's just a review, right? You can I review a published work. You can? Says the professor. Anyone can review a published <laughs> work as long as we cite it correctly. Okay. Okay. Good to know because I would very much like to do that. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, I have a question for you both. Um, I am a great admirer of both, both, both of your work. I really, I really love the work that you do. I love who you... This sounds weird. I don't know how else to say it. I love who you are on the internet. Like, I just like watching the stuff that you put out there and uh, interacting with y'all in public um, and, you know, in, in phone calls and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I noticed pretty early that there was a lot to learn um, that I could learn from the way that you worked with stories and, and how you use them. Cause you, you use them in slightly different ways, certainly different mediums. Um, but yet I could see how important stories are to what you put out into the world. And so um, the question I have is, when did you realize that stories had to be a part of your creative work? And I kick it over to you, Matthew, to, to start. Well, I, I, I love a good story. Um, I love hearing about a story. I love, I like to think that I can tell a good story. I guess that the jury is still out uh, on that. Um, but I think we all, we all connect through stories, whether it's a, um, a, a parable, whether it's a poem, whether it's a personal experience, a biography. or um, And I think there is um, something really powerful in knowing that we are also recipients uh, of stories, but also we are participants as well. So we are, we are constantly creating our own stories. So I'm creating a story with my family um, today. I, we've, I have been yes, the other day. We've just returned from holidays. And so we are constantly um, in this process of creating stories. And I think the important thing to remember is as well that everybody has a story. Um, everyone has a, a process by which they came here. Um, they have a process by which they see the world and how they construct meaning. And so for me um, with the podcast, I not only do I think stories are really important, but I also think we connect with stories. I actually don't want to know um, things that I can just Google about a guest. I don't think that's the important thing. I want to know why they view the world in a particular way. I want to know how their um, philosophy of, of education um, has been constructed. I want to hear about stories um, about when they were in school. What were they like? What um, decisions led them to perceive the world in a certain way. And so I think stories are incredibly important um, and I love them. And I know that um, it's a way of celebrating people's uniqueness, but also connecting. I mean, there's something deeply rooted in our evolution, people sitting around campfires and talking and sharing stories and painting and sharing 
uh, oral stories or written stories. And so I think to be able to contribute in some small way to um, celebrate our individuality as educators, but also um, celebrate our range of perspectives, I think is really important. And uh, stories for me are um, are really, really important. Um, uh, my wife is a, um, she's a writer. She did a master's in creative writing. And so she's constantly saying, read this story, read um, uh, Arundhati Roy, wrote The God of Small Things, an incredible book. Um, obviously, uh, The Life of Pi, she's constantly just handing me books. And I'm always in awe of these amazing and these beautifully told stories. And the fact that I can, like I said, in some small way, share the stories of educators um, in a podcast medium is, um, yeah, a huge privilege. Um, but, yeah, I don't want to do, I don't want to, say things that people can Google. Um, I want to really get to the bottom of why people think um, um, the way they do um, and also find out sort of how people's minds have changed. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like a therapy session to me. I mean, I got to sit down with yourself and, and, and Julie virtually and I got to spend an hour with both of you hearing your story and it was like a counselling session. I was like, oh, wow, like this is great. So in some ways it's a... Uh, a free counseling session, but in other ways, it's a way of sort of celebrating um, people's uniqueness and just how we are all incredibly connected. I mean, we are phoning from different parts of the world, but we have so much in common. We're from mm -hmm. different backgrounds, different beliefs, different views of the world. We look different, mm -hmm. um, but it's the stories are the things that um, that I think really bind us together. But that was a very long-winded uh, answer. But stories are important, and they need to be they need to be shared. Yeah. I think. Julie, what about you? When did you realize stories just had to be a part of, of what you created? My mother and grandmother were both teachers and they read to me all the time. And so I loved fairy tales and folk tales and all kinds of stories. And I still love to read fiction, just like Matthew. Like, I love a good novel. Um, then I went to grad school and at first mistakenly thought that research and data was just about numeric data and everything is black and white, and everything can be analyzed statistically. And I took Valerie Janicek's qualitative methods class, and that was it, like in love with qualitative methodology hooks, because there was data and stories. Like I always knew there were lessons in stories because of the kind of stories my mom and grandma read to me, but to think that stories are just data, like Brene Brown says, data with a soul, mm -hmm that you can put together and look for themes and make interpretations and, and figure out how people experience the world. Um, like that's just, I have never looked back <laughs> since, the, since that very first day in Valerie Janicek's class, that's been my passion and, a, and an important part of my work life. This is like, I really love, those answers. I, so this is going to sound strange. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking, the three of us are talking about stories and how important they are. Um, but, but I must admit, I had a very long, um, period of my life where I was really skeptical, skeptical about the use of stories in, in my work, whether it was in like my data work or in, uh, you know, the way I did public speaking, you know, and, and things like that. And I had, you know, what felt like an endless stream of feedback from people saying you have to, you really, you can't just, you know, put a bunch of numbers out there. And, you know, my, 
I think my feeling at the time was people should decide for themselves. Like, you know, if we add a narrative to it, then it kind of, you know, sways people one way or the other. And something that I sort of realized, I don't know, I don't know what it caused me to sort of realize. I think it might've been, oh boy, I should say, I think, was it Dan and Chip Heath who wrote the book that popularized the idea of like, uh, of, winning people over both in like mind and heart, like the, this idea of, you know, they, they have a really great, oh boy, I'm really butchering the, uh, they did the, <laughs> their theory. The power, of, the power of moment, but they did another one too, but they, but they do tell anecdotes yeah. in their books. They do a good job of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that might've been one of a few different, you know, books that sort of got me really pondering this. Um, but the big realization I had, the kind of aha moment, which I had to sort of sit with for a while was that the idea that, um, stories skew data was in and of itself a story I had been telling myself it's its own narrative. And, you know, I began to see, you know, we talked a lot about the way stories can empower us to connect with people. Um, I think what I would add to that is they can be the framework through which we relate to ourselves and how we see the world, our own personal stories. And that, and that was one for me that, uh, well, that's not something I do because I'm the data person. Um, and, uh, and that, but really what that was, was a narrative, which was probably useful in its own way for a while, but eventually became really not useful. And, um, yeah, I had a recent conversation with, um, Dr. Stephanie Evergreen and, uh, was talking about a similar thing and she gave me some really good advice by reminding me like, well, it's not like data can't skew people one way or the other too, you know, numerical data. And she's like a, she's this, you know, sort of master of both like numerical and qualitative data. So again, you know, maybe that's like the secondary story I had to uncover for myself was the idea that like numbers are objective and, um, just, yeah, go ahead. I think that's so interesting. Go ahead, Matthew. Oh, sorry. Um, I think you raised such a really important point, Ryan. And, and I think, like, I'm really interested at the moment about the things that we um, unlearn. I don't know, even know if that's a, a, a word. Um, but I know there's so many preconceptions that I had coming into teaching. There's so many. I, I never thought I'd be someone who would release a podcast. I never thought I was any good at maths. And there's all these sort of... Um, stories that we tell ourselves and they come from somewhere and I think it's fascinating that as as adults it is as much a process of learning new things um as it is of actually forgetting some of the things that you were taught in class and I I've got two um I've got two young kids and I'm very aware of that the, the the stories and the narratives that we tell them um and just how important it is to um structure their world in a way that opens them up to possibilities as yeah. opposed to being restrained. And I think sometimes, um, I think in many cases, the greatest battles that we face are not external, but are happening inside of our head. Mm. It's things like self doubt mm-hmm. and belief and challenges and all of this stuff. And so, um, I'm very aware at the moment of that kind of inner dialogue and those inner, those stories that we tell ourselves, and also how important it is to position yourself again and again as someone who is a learner and someone who doesn't 
really know what to do. Like I think, like I remember when I first stepped into a leadership role at school, um, I was terrified that people would realise that I had no idea what I was doing. Um, And then I began to realise that the people in the room we're still trying to figure it out as well. Um, And I remember being so terrified and now sort of applying that strategy to starting new things, to starting writing, to starting researching again, to um, putting your stuff out there on the internet is um, even that may seem terrifying. I know that I've been here before and I know it's the same process of positioning yourself in a place where you, it's a wonderful thing to be a learner again, because we ask our kids to do that, but we, quite often I think seek comfort as opposed to something that really stretches us. So I'm really thinking about that at the moment. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, Julie. What were you saying? No, I love that you talked about being a learner. And I'm so interested that Ryan said that he felt like stories were more leading than numerical data because I always thought the opposite, (laughs) that people can find their own meaning in a story. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And that our job as people who tell stories and and write about stories is not to unpack it so much that we tell people what it means, mm. but let them decide for themselves what a yeah. story means. Yeah. And, and I think, Julie, one of the things that I, I love about your work is those, is the newsletters that I get. I know we talked about this off air and, uh, and, and I love that you are celebrating the great things that individual teachers do. Um, and that's so powerful because it not only makes me, um, feel like I was in that class, but it also reminds me that um, stories are incredibly personal and sometimes it is really hard to quantify the impact of a teacher. And I love that your research methodology in your book was standing in a um, a, a public market with a sign collecting that. stories of teachers. Like I, it blew my mind when I read that because I thought like, I thought it had to be sort of surveys and checklists and observational data but yet you did something which was incredibly powerful and you were able to measure the impact of the great work that teachers do through the stories of their students and I I don't know I love that it's so simple but so profound so um I don't know is are a lot of people in in your world Julie doing that are they is there a bit of a shift because I've never even I've heard a lot and I've never heard of that being done before no one is doing that and it's funny, you know, you said as a school leader, you you felt that kind of imposter syndrome, like people don't know what I'm doing. I felt that so much at the beginning, like people are going to say this is not scholarly work, you know, that this is not real research. Um, but I haven't gotten that response at all. You know, it was the best crazy idea. It was a crazy idea, but the, like the best crazy idea I ever had because that data is so interesting and useful and it's endless the minute people hear i'm researching teachers who impacted lives you you get a story they just keep coming so um no i haven't heard of anyone else at the time i started i hadn't heard of anyone else doing it i don't know if others are doing it now i hope they are you know i hope other people pick it up and start doing it too and we've spoken about this before like i would really love to do that because i'm really passionate about the um the, the impact of what teachers have. Um, and so I would love to um, kind of take some of that on. So thank you for the inspiration. Yes. Do it over there and then we'll compare. 
I love that. Yeah, join. Yeah, it'll be a big data join. Julie, for for listeners who haven't read your book yet, uh, you want to say a little bit more about like what what your uh, surprise methodology was? Oh, sure. So, um, as a as a new researcher, I had to have a research focus, like a big question to answer. And at the same time, I became a professor. My most beloved first grade teacher, Mrs. Russell, retired. So my question was, what do teachers like Mrs. Russell say and do that leave this lasting impact on our lives? And I started by interviewing teachers because that's what we do as ed researchers. But we don't know our impact unless the kid writes us a letter or comes back to see us. Like teachers knew what they hoped their impact was, but they didn't really have a lot of evidence. So I went to my research mentor and he said, well, I guess you're going to have to talk to former students. And they're not hard to find. <laughs> they're everywhere. You yeah. just need to figure out a way to invite people to talk to you about their teachers. So I bought a sign at Office Depot that said, let's chat about a teacher you remember. It was the best $25 I've ever spent. Amazing. That sign with the stake in the ground. Because people will line up to remember and tell you about their teachers. And there's this mix of emotions. It's like gratitude and joy, and it takes people back to how they felt in that classroom. It's For me, it's like the privilege of my life to be able to stand there and receive those stories and be grateful with them for teachers who put discretionary effort into them. Amazing. Amazing. I, I, I really loved it for all the reasons that Matthew said that he loved it too, and an additional one, which is it seems like such a rebel move to me to just be like, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it this way. <laughs> You're gonna sit at a flea market. I just love it. Just like that. It's so great, you know that. That like, you know, I think there's something to be said about uh, trying a different approach, you know, and. You know, I get, I get that there, you know, we have, look, I, you know, I enjoy statistics and I enjoy, you know, a lot of things that have had a very long history behind them. And at the same time, uh, there comes a point, I think, where it, you need to kind of step outside of that just for a little bit, just to try something different because, the world is so nuanced, right? And it's, it just, you know, I, I like to say I work, I work a lot with very large data sets, like lots and lots and lots of data. Um, and, you know, one of the things that can be really tough is you have that much data. Um, inevitably what happens is individual data points start to con- contradict each other, right? And that can be really frustrating to people because, you know, they're like, well, then which data point is right? And so something I've been thinking a lot about is, well, the more data you gather, the more you uh, you reflect reality, which is inherently uh, yeah. contradictory and confusing and chaotic at times. And we're just receiving more inputs to illustrate yeah. that, right? And, and, and I really, so to me, the point I'm trying to make here is I think, you know, what, what you did, Julie, in that instance, also, Matthew, what you do, you know, with such a broad um, selection of interviewees is is you're sampling from like the actual world. It's not a surprise that like you've got yeah. a bunch of contradictory stuff. Well, I think that's a really, really, really important point, Brian. And um, 
I am really passionate about professional learning, but as we talked about before, like I want to know like how is it I'm about to step in front of my class on Monday morning. There's going to be 28 of them um, and they have been entrusted into my care for the rest of the term and I need to know how that professional learning is going to impact those people in my class. And one of the things that I'm, I have found really works, and this was um, after reading your uh, work, Julie, and also after talking to you, Ryan, about, about um, I'm going to say data, even though I say data, because I want to appeal uh, <laughs> to a US audience. Um, but for me, um, the data that I collect at the classroom level is so incredibly important. And one of the things that I've started doing after reading uh, your book, Julie, is um, collecting data on um, well-being in my class. And it sounds so simple, but I wanted to try and find out what were the points in the day where my students were feeling anxious, stressed, upset, disengaged. And we collect a whole range of data on reading, writing, maths, all of that stuff. But I wanted um, some more information on that uh, data, which is hard to, I'm still trying to say data, uh, which is hard <laughs> to um, kind of capture. And so we just really simply, um, all the kids have an iPad, we have a QR code, and that just links directly to a Google form. And it will be zero to 10, my teacher has listened to me today. Zero to 10, I feel like I have friends in my class. Zero to 10, I feel like um, I am respected in this room, whatever. And that's a really great point to capture, not every day, but most days, a really great way to capture some of these uh, or to gauge the temperature of the classroom. And so, yeah, I'm hugely grateful, um, Ryan, that you're working not only in the sort of the much larger data spaces, but also in the kind of the classroom level as well, which I think is really important. Um, but it doesn't need to be, I think I grew up with a bit of a maths anxiety. Like I never thought I was any good at it. My maths teacher in year 11 didn't like maths. And so I just thought, what's the point really? Um, and then I've interviewed some um a, a, a professor called Professor Catherine Attard, who was my university professor, and she has changed the game for me. People like Eddie Wu that sort of talk about the amazing beauty and wonder and life in mathematics. And so what I'm starting to see now with data is that it isn't impersonal. It isn't held in some vault somewhere. It's something that we can use every day to get a better understanding and tell a more accurate story about what's happening in our class. And it's really um, wonderful, like I said, to be able to take some of this work up here and bring it to the classroom level because there's gold uh, in that. And when I know I can get a snapshot of in week one, my class were feeling pretty, pretty nervous after recess. They felt great after lunch. In week two, they were feeling great after recess but nervous after lunch. So I can sort of see a bit of a trajectory of how the emotions in the class going and also what are some of the things that we can do to help reduce some of the anxiety to build that connection? So um, I think I've definitely learned that with data, it's incredibly personal um, and, and really meaningful. And that's largely through reading your works. Um, so yeah, very grateful for that to both of you. I want to turn our attention. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, Ryan, I talked, I teach Funny enough, the data informed decision-making. That's right. Yes. To oh, aspiring yeah. principals. Um, we talk about your book, so they've been reading your book. Mm, amazing. And one of the questions that comes up all the time and you address it so beautifully is, how do we not lose sight of the individual mm, student? Yeah. 
when we look at the data and, and you, because of the stories you tell and the mm -hmm. reflective questions you ask, make that such a natural part of the data analysis process. So, so mm -hmm. I, I love your book and so do they, and it's so helpful in thinking about big picture, but also not losing the individuals that that data represents. That means yeah. so much to me. Thank you so much for, for saying that. Because it is a difficult thing, I found it anyway for me, a difficult thing to put language to. It's like you kind of know, you, you know, I think it's easy to be aware of that tension. We all kind of feel it, which is why I'm guessing some folks are like, data is not really for me, right? I think they're, I think they're trying to resolve that tension. Something about it feels incomplete. Um, and yet to try and talk about that, I found very difficult. I, if, and, and, and strangely, it was, you know, I kind of had to stitch together insights from a bunch of stories from teachers who are like, yeah, I don't, this is sort of what makes me uncomfortable about it. And so it was, you know, going back to that theme of stories, it was like hearing story after story after story, and then really pushing myself to put language to the common experience about why data can be really uncomfortable. Um, and then also asking myself the question, like for, you know, for the folks who it's not, who really enjoy it, why is that? And, you know, again, you can sense attention, you can sense the resolution of the tension between like, you know, uh, numbers and then, you know, the more, you know, kind of qualitative story driven side of things. But it's very difficult to say, like, I think there's a, there's a tendency to want to think of those as two separate things. And it's very difficult to apply language that kind of encompasses both. Yeah. So all of that to say, thank you for saying that because uh, it means a lot to me. Um, okay. So here's, here's what I want to turn my attention to, uh, to next. I know we're uh, we're coming up on time here, but I want to make sure to squeeze this in here because I would love to hear what you think about it. I know we share, I'll share the common view that educators are creative people. Mm -hmm. And we can interpret that in so many different ways, you know, not the least of which is, you know, you, you, you have to, you know, creativity is a lot about managing constraints and um, being an educator is um, is finding the really wonderful ideas that sprout from constraints. You know, like this job would be very, very different if teachers and service providers all worked with one student. You know, but um, but the constraint is the way the system works is you work with many students and, and it ends up being a beautiful thing, but it requires people to create and be innovative. Um, I uh, I am not totally convinced, although y'all should tell me if I'm wrong about this. I'm not totally convinced that all educators see their job as a creative job in the way that, say, an architect or a writer might. Um, and part of that, I think might be because there's not always a scripted path to acting on people's desire to be creative. Um, and so here's the question. Uh, if a new, well, let's, let's not even say a new educator. If any educator came to you and said, I want to express myself more creatively in my education job, what would you tell them to do? I'm going to start with you, Julie. Oh, I love this question because I am finishing a book manuscript, knock on wood, due next week. Um, and what I was interested in is how do educators 
take a challenge or a problem in the classroom and turn that into an opportunity for impact because impact is born of problems and challenges. Yes. The, the student who doesn't understand or who makes a mistake or won't comply, those are our opportunities to make an impact. And the creativity comes from looking at that challenge or problem and identifying the opportunity. They're pushing aside all the assumptions about our work and the kid and the situation and instead just coming from this place of curiosity. What's really going on here? What's the kid's story? And now what can I do that might put this student on a different trajectory? Which doesn't sound like what we traditionally think of creativity, but that kind of problem solving is highly creative. Yeah. I think I would say that it's born of how you handle a challenge and a problem. I've, um, I've heard some of my favorite designers I've noticed, um, you know, designers who, who people would widely acknowledge as like creative professionals, right? The way they talk about their work is I solve problems Mm -hmm. that that's, you know, how do I, how do I build what this, how do I build the building that the client wants on a limited budget or on a limited timeline? Um, like how do we make that happen? I've even heard the argument, I think it might've been Tim Brown that, uh, you need those constraints in order to make something creative. If resources were unlimited, either personal or financial or time, then there's no real problem solving there. Eventually, right. over like a 10,000 year long period, it's just going to solve itself. It'll be fine. Right. <laughs> I, so, you know, when I look yeah. at these stories that people tell about teachers who impacted their lives, those things happen because there was a challenge or a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there wasn't, I'm not sure we'd have the opportunity to make that That's kind right. of impact if it was sunshine and rainbows and smooth sailing all the time. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew, if uh, an educator came to you and said, I would like to express myself creatively um, in my education job, what would you tell them is the first step they should take? Well, firstly, I think I'm being incredibly creative because I'm scribbling with my daughter's <laughs> uh, purple Crayola on um, a cardboard uh, that I found. Um, I so, but, but I, think, I think there's a number, I think it's such an important question. Um, and there is a number of, um, I think, ways I would approach that. Um, uh, firstly, if you're an educator and you've never spent time in a kindergarten classroom, I feel sorry for you because you need to do that. Mm. I think I'm going to get in trouble now if my team hears this because we are not a kindergarten team, but I think the best teaching happens uh, in kindergarten. Um, I think that it is an incredibly uh, creative and innovative environment, and I think the hardest working teachers in the world are kindergarten teachers, but I'm going to move on before I get in trouble. <laughs> um, uh, but I think I would, I would think about a couple of things. Um, I'll think about the classroom space. I think it's really important to create an environment where uh, students feel as though they can take risks. They feel as though they can uh, make mistakes. Um, and also um, I think like modeled failure is really, really important. Right. Like, so modeled mistakes, there's no mm-hmm. such thing as failure unless you kind of give up. And so yeah. I think creating that environment and, and flattening that hierarchy is, is really important. I am not the smartest person in the world. Um, all of my kids have got iPads. Google is smarter than me. So my job, I think, is to create that space in, in which our students or in which your students can be creative. Um, and I also think um, what you are saying before about um, restraints are really, really important. Look, I'm speaking from a New South Wales point of view. I'm a very proud public educator. New South Wales is a state, a very large state in Australia. 
Um, and I know that there are challenges working in such a large organization. I sit around lunchrooms, I hear people talk about it. But to be honest, like I'm not interested in staying at the point of identifying challenges. I want to start moving forward. So right. I want to start to think about, okay, we all agree that this particular approach isn't working. It's not enough just to stay there. How can we innovate? How can we uh, think about a way forward? Um, I don't think we need more people complaining. I think we need a more creative approach. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what the world has experienced with COVID has caused us to rethink some of those things that we believed were extremely um, um, central to our education system and actually asked us to, to answer, sorry, forced us to answer some, some really challenging questions about what does it mean. Um, I think I've gone a little bit off topic there, but I think creating a, um, a space for creativity and also I think as a professional modeling that yourself, I think is really important. Yeah. I'm not being scared to look stupid. I, I look stupid all the time. Just ask anyone that I work with. It's fine. Um, I think I didn't, um, going back to my early days as a leader, I didn't want to look stupid because I thought it reflected badly on me, but then I realized that I wasn't doing a very good job pretending I knew what I was talking about anyway. So you may as well approach things as a, as someone who is a learner. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. There was this to that, to that point, Matthew, there was this, uh, statistical programmer who's very well respected, um, at, in the uh, community and certainly, you know, one of my, my personal heroes, um, very, an expert like it every, by any definition. And one of the stories that he told was once he went into a foreign, he was, uh, he was stuck on a programming problem, writing code. And, um, he, so first off that on its own, very humanizing to come out and say that, you know, when your heroes, like I'm, I get stuck like everybody else, very nice to hear. Um, but he said he went, he did, did what all of, uh, all of us, uh, programmers do, um, went onto the forums to go find the solution and had accidentally, as he was searching through it, run into a uh, question that he had asked on that same forum, but like 10 years ago. And it was a question that he had, you know, it was a problem that he was having trouble solving 10, you know, 10 years ago that he had since moved on from. And the lesson that he learned from this is if you can find some way to remind yourself of how far you've come, um, you might not feel so bad about like making mistakes because, you know, he like, it's just one of those things, you know, the internet is fraught with all kinds of contradictions, value, and also, you know, you know, very complicated things that we have to resolve. But one of the things I think it does give us is like, well, it's got a pretty long memory, you know? And so you can sort of go back and see how you, how you've evolved. And in that context, what might have felt like frustration or desperation to improve and, you know, maybe maybe even shame that you weren't as good as you thought you were in that context sort of feels like, no, it's almost like that was necessary. Yeah. How could I have been how could I have become whatever it is that I am without that? And I, I just think it's so interesting. Yeah, that's such an important point, Ryan. And I think I've learned like I'm scared all the time all the time yeah. about stuff that like, what, will, I don't know, what will people think or yes. sound like an idiot? Do I, you know, like what could I really say in this space? I'm just kidding myself. I get it all the time. I feel um, like out of depth most of the time, most of the day. Um, but I think what I've got better at is learning to 
keep moving forward despite of that. Mm -hmm. And so for me with the, the podcast, like I just said, I'm releasing an episode every week regardless. Um, there, I think there's been two weeks I haven't, um, but I don't like the sound of my own voice. I don't like listening to it. I don't like, but you just got to keep doing stuff. You got to keep doing stuff mm -hmm. that scares you. And I don't know about you, Julie. I know how consistent you are with your newsletter. As I said, I got one today, but do you just have to make a decision to keep doing it and seeing what happens? Do you, I mean, you've written a lot. Does it still terrify you to think that some kid in Australia is reading it going, oh, that's Every interesting. Day. <laughs> Terrifying. Every time I open the laptop, I decide that what I have no write? idea what I'm going to write, no idea how to write, panic yeah. for a few minutes, and then I just start and it comes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Every day. Such a universal experience for anybody creating. I mean, the, you, yeah. you name, like, I, I can't think of a creator. I admire or think of a hero who doesn't have a story about fear. Yeah. I, I just and can't I, think of one. And it's something freeing, isn't it? When you, like, like I, I like I, I've spoken to some like amazing educators and and people that um people that I think like I know I don't have tickets on myself but I think some people that I think my colleagues would be a bit scared to approach but then when you like ask them questions and like who was your favorite teacher how did they impact your life and you see people that are in their 60s and 70s or 80s that have been researchers for 50 years and their face just lights up when they talk about this experience in their class or you ask them about what did they change their mind about or what's something that they're most grateful from with their parents. And you see these, um, not walls are the wrong word because words because people have been so incredibly generous, but you sort of see the humanity, I think, yeah. behind all these individuals. Mm -hmm. And that is so, so powerful. You see people's stories and you, you get to go, oh, wow, that's why you are so committed to solving this. It's because of this or... And so I, I love getting to unpack that. And the, the process for me of releasing a podcast has been brilliant. Like I think it's, it's made me a better listener. It's made me a better, um, I think it's made me a better person. And I thought when I first started this, I thought the worst case scenario is that I'll just waste a whole lot of time and I'll get to meet some cool people. All right, let's go. Even yeah. if no one listens, mm -hmm. that's great. And I'm so and I'm glad it's more than that, but that would be the worst case scenario that I would build relationships with people like yourselves and I would get to talk about the incredible privilege it is to do what we do. I mean, that's a pretty good worst case scenario. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm so grateful that um, in terms of that creative process, I'm so grateful that I just, you just got to keep going and you've got to produce something. And I used to think it was, quality over quantity but i think it's actually about consistency a lot more than like i do not have a studio quality podcast there's as you will probably hear when you hear this there's kids in the background shouting the <laughs> doors getting slammed but i also think that adds a kind of an authenticity mm. no one wants to hear a sony produced podcast right. they want to hear stories of great educators and why they do what they do so i think i i, I used to think like a year from now like would I be glad that I started this? And two years on, I'm very glad that I started this. You know, you've got to, I think, keep going, keep producing, working hard, but also do something that you care deeply about. Mm -hmm. I mean, Julie, like I said, your newsletters are now getting opened and adding, and same as yours, Ryan, adding hope 
and um, adding hope to teachers all over the world. I mean, that's, that's a crazy concept that you can read something, you can share a story of a teacher that you researched in a flea market many years ago, and then somebody on the other side of the world can open it and go, wow, that's given me hope. That's why I do what I do. And that's mm-hmm. an incredible, um, that's incredible privilege, I think, to have at our disposal. And it's, yeah. and it's an opportunity that I do not take lightly at all. Yeah, um, yeah mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. And what, mm-hmm. a, what a privilege. No one else gets to shape the mind of, minds of young people, and yet we do. It's a huge privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to say, y'all, I could talk about this all day. I think it's such, I think creativity is fascinating. I think education and educators are fascinating. I think the, whatever the Venn diagram is between all of those things is even more fascinating. And I would love to explore this more um, and talk more about it. Um, but we are coming up on time and I want to make sure that we know for anybody who is looking for y'all's work on the internet, where can they find you? Matthew, let's, let's go to you. Where can people find you online? Um, so my name's Matthew Green. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter. I think Matthew with one T uh, Green uh, and also the Art of Teaching podcast is on iTunes, Spotify, all of those kind of places. So just search for the Art of Teaching podcast and say hi. Julie? I'm Julie Schmidt Hassan. There's a lovely Julie Hassan who writes vegan cookbooks. That is not me. <laughs> I am not a good cook. She's fabulous, but I am not the cookbook one. I am the educator one. So on social media, I'm Julie S. Hassan, I think on every platform. And then my website is chalkandchances.com. All right. We'll put both of those in the show notes. I am Ryan Estriato. My website is ryanestriato.com. The book is the K-12 Educators Data Guidebook, Reimagining Practical Data Use in Schools. And I am rye underscore estriato on Twitter and Instagram. Okay. Let's do this again, y'all. Can we? Yeah, loved it. Okay, it was so much fun. I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I was about to say I know it's late, but that's not actually true for all of us. <laughs> it, it is truest, I think, maybe for Julie. Uh, and then maybe... getting late here, and I go <laughs> to right. bed really early. So yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's late when you have young kids that have been up yeah, since there the crack There it's you coming go. up to midday here, but it feels like it could be midnight. I'm telling it's you, nap time, Matthew. <laughs> nap time for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, everybody. We'll we'll talk again soon. Take care. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Ryan. Bye, Matthew. Bye.